0: Father, we thank you that the entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would be present with us in a particular way,
1: illuminating
0: the scriptures, the truth of God and the character of God unto our hearts and our minds. Thank you that this is the word of your grace and it's also the word of your power. In Jesus' name. Amen third in a series on the omniscience of God the all-knowing nature of God three weeks ago I was cancelled because there was a double booking and it was going to be a one-off sermon on the omniscience of God but how many of you know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose because you've had three messages on the omniscience of God today's talk is essentially about the fact that the omniscient God is a God of breathtaking detail. If you missed two weeks ago, that is here, you missed a talk about the things that he has made. If you missed last week, you missed the first in this little mini-series about Cyrus the Great and how Isaiah the prophet prophesied in great detail, including Cyrus's name over a hundred years before Cyrus was born and 150 years before Cyrus fulfilled his ministry in taking Babylon, bringing down the Babylonian Empire and issuing his decree for the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Hands up if anybody took the time through the week that was here last week to look at that Cyrus cylinder and the words of the first ever decree of human rights. At least three people, four people—wonderful! That's marvellous. That's still only about less than ten percent of the con- well, it's about ten percent of the congregation. But praise God for the remnant. God always leaves Himself a remnant. So our foundational scriptures. Let's remind ourselves of those first from Hannah's song in First Samuel two verse three b. For the Lord God is a God of knowledges. In the Hebrew that word knowledge is plural. As the NIV puts it, for the Lord is a God who knows. What does he know? He knows everything. Because remember, there isn't anything about which God doesn't know everything. Wonderful. And our second foundational scripture, Psalm 111, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied By all who delight in them. God invites us to know him through delighting in the things that he has made. That includes each other. That includes your husband or your wife or your father or your brother or your sister. Or the brother you have just prayed with either for the United States of America or for our aboriginal brothers and sisters. And he invites us to study and delight together. Werner Keller was a German fellow born in 1909 and uh, died in 1980 in Ascona in Switzerland. The dates of his life might give you a clue as to some of the trials and tribulations and difficulties that Werner Keller encountered in the course of his life because he didn't nearly didn't live until 1980. He was ready to die in April 1945 because he was part of an ambitious and elaborate plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He and his fellow conspirators were captured, all of them sentenced to death, but thankfully for him, unlike, for example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Americans liberated his prison before the death penalty could be carried out, and Werner Keller lived until the age of 71 in 1980. The reason I bring that up, and we're going to return to something that he wrote later, is that by 1956, (coughs) Werner Keller was so in love with delighting in the things of God, studying them for their own sake, and so perplexed as to why the academic world and the church world wasn't making more of the fact that everything that was ever found archaeologically in the Near and Middle East Proves the truth and the veracity of the Bible. And he thought to himself, I'm just a journalist that nearly got shot or hung by Adolf Hitler. Where are the theologians? Where are the church leaders? Where are the academics writing books about the veracity of the Bible and how every word within it is true? And he couldn't find any. So he wrote it himself. And in 1956, Werner Keller published The Bible as History. Here's a sentence, just a sentence. We'll come back to him before we finish today about why he wrote this book in 1956. As a journalist, I have been for many years exclusively concerned with the results of modern science and research as it pertains to the Bible. That was his sole motive. Science and research delighting in the things of the Lord. So we're going to have the spirit of Werner Keller this morning, and we're going to delight ourselves in studying this relatively short passage within this significantly longer passage that we've been looking at now for the last two to three weeks. Isaiah 42 to Isaiah 48. But today we're just going to confine ourselves to Isaiah 48, verses 12 to 20. In other words, nine verses of Scripture. And we're going to delight ourselves in discovering what these nine verses of Scripture tell us first about the character and nature and self-disclosure of God, and then we're going to tie up some loose ends from last week in terms of detail about the fall of Babylon and the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, thanks to Cyrus's decree that we didn't have time for last week. So we're in Isaiah 48, and we're going to start... In verse 12, God says in verse 16, Draw near to me. That's his invitation. That has always been God's invitation to humanity. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. Verse 12. Let's look at how God identifies himself in this single verse. Firstly... He who called Jacob and Israel. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. Who calls Israel becomes Israel's king. We'll come back to that in a moment. Secondly, verse 12. I am he. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you, for example, of anything in John chapter 18 or John chapter 20? Here's the passage in John chapter 18. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them in the original Hebrew, in the uh, Aramaic, I am. Our English versions add he, I am he. He. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Notice the power of that statement. I am he. So he asked them again, you know, while they're still in a mess on the floor with all of their weapons that they now need to pick up again. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he and three chapters later when Mary comes looking for his body in the garden and the tomb's empty and she finds him in the garden but she doesn't recognise who he is this conversation although in such a different way is almost had over again why are you crying? whom do you seek? and this time he doesn't say I am he he uses her name Mary so who is he? The next little clause in verse 12 of Isaiah 48 tells us, I am the first and the last. That familiar? I am the first and the last. I'll tell you why it's familiar. Because that phrase is used by Jesus himself. So we've just identified who the speaker is in Isaiah 48. Three times in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, verse 4, Isaiah 44, verse 6, where he also says, Apart from me, there is no God. So, I am the first and the last is also God. And here in Isaiah 48, verse 12. Three occasions in the book of Isaiah. I am the first and the last. Three is the number of divinity. It's the number of the Godhead. So God is confirming through the words of Jesus, through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel that he is the first and he is the last. That is a phrase of eternality. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits where? Eternity. I dwell in that high and holy place and also with him or her who is humble and contrite in spirit. And he goes on to refresh the heart of the humble and to revive the spirit of the contrite. For I shall not contend forever, neither shall I be always wroth. The words I am the first and the last is a statement of God's eternality. But the other reason you know this phrase is because it appears four times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 11. Revelation 1, verse 17. I can't remember the third one, but it's on your notes. Revelation 23, verse 13 or 17. Probably 13, I would say. It's 13. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Sam. And for those who nodded, four times. What is the number four about in Scripture? It's about the whole of creation. It's about the heavens and the earth, the four corners of the earth, the four rivers that flowed from the Garden of Eden, the four seasons, the four winds from heaven. So God in Isaiah is confirming that Jesus is the first and the last to the nation of Israel. He is their eternal king. And then in the book of Revelation... He confirms that he is the king of the whole earth. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. And you add three, God's uh, eternality in Isaiah, uh, in the book of Isaiah, together with four in the book of Revelation, what do you get? Seven. The number of spiritual perfection. The king of the Jews will one day perfect the whole of creation and the new heavens and the new earth will be brought in. You see God's breathtaking attention to detail in what we're reading today. We've only looked at verse 12 and we've got three glorious titles, three glorious forms of self-identification of Jesus Christ, the first and the last. But there's more. Verse 13, he is the creator. Notice the phrase there, when I call for them, they stand forth together. I sing the mighty power of God Who made the mountains rise Who spread the mighty seas abroad And framed something, the lofty skies I didn't sing over anybody there We weren't singing as a congregation <laughs> This is glorious because God says there in verse 13 That he once and forever framed the earth and the heavens. No sign of evolutionary theory there. No sign of big bangs and subsequent evolving of species and so on and so forth. He once and forever framed the heavens and the earth. Write down Hebrews 11 verse 3 if you want to check another reference to that later today. You know, many years ago, he doesn't know whether he was was born in 1860 or 1861, but seeing as Nadoc week starts today, I want to just bring the story of William Cooper into today's message. William Cooper was a Yorta Yorta man who was taught in an Aboriginal mission school to read and to write and to love scripture. And as William Cooper grew, there was something about the fact that God was his creator and that God made everything good, and that we had a common ancestry in Adam and Eve. So when William Cooper began to experience the prejudice and the discrimination in Australian society under the white Australia policy, he began to read Matthew 7 verse 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's an injunction that's repeated, as we know, in Luke's gospel as well. And he began to ask the question, why? Why? You've taught me to read and write. You've taught me to love these scriptures and through them to love the God who created us all. So how come I'm not a citizen of Australia? And so burdened was William Cooper and several of his friends that they formed the Australian Aborigines League. And by the 1930s, this Yorta Yorta man had moved to Footscray of all places... We think about missionaries going, you know, to the ends of the earth. And we've seen some of those ends of the earth this morning. Glory be to God. But Footscray to William Cooper in western Melbourne was the ends of the earth. It was an alien society. But why did he move there? To fulfil the call of God on his life. To awaken the British monarchy and Australian society to the fact that Aboriginal people were human beings like they were. And that Aboriginal Christians were brothers and sisters in Christ. And William Cooper and his friends gathered a petition of 1800 signatures. We think nothing of that in today's world because we've got the internet. But they were all handwritten. 1800 And he asked that it be sent to King George V and the Australian government wouldn't send it. Do you know why the Australian government wouldn't send it? Because William Cooper and his friends and most of those 1800 signatories were not Australian citizens. But William Cooper didn't confine himself with his revelation as God of creator, as the one who had framed the heavens and the earth and continued providentially to love this planet and all that he had made. He didn't confine himself just to protesting about the rights of Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders in this nation. When the German Nazi Party instituted Kristallnacht, in November 1938, and 91 Jews were murdered in cold blood on the streets of civilised cities, and 30,000 more of them were deported to concentration camps, there was one non-governmental protest against Kristallnacht in the whole world. Just one. And by this time, William Cooper was nearly 80 years of age, but he walked from Footscray to the German consulate in Melbourne, and he gave a speech to the German consular. And he said, this must stop. There was a lot more to what he said as well. But that was the simplicity of it. This must stop. And how many of you know that he who blesses Israel will himself be blessed? And let's think about that. Because what date in Australia... Did aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders finally be recognised in law as citizens of this nation I'll tell you when it was, it was the 27th of May 1967 what else happened in the last week of May 1967 the Jews took the Temple Mount back from Jordan and for the first time in nearly 2,000 years Israel was united as a Jewish nation and he who blesses Israel will themselves be blessed God's timing God's breathtaking attention to detail there's no coincidence here Aboriginal people became citizens were recognised rather because they'd always been citizens they'd been citizens long before any of us were but they were recognised as citizens of this nation that very week because how many of you know that when God blesses the Jews it's with a view to blessing the whole earth So God as our creator in verse 13. Verse 14 and 15. We have a reiteration of what we looked at last week. The one who sets apart, who calls and loves Cyrus. Verse 17. The caller of Israel is also her redeemer and Messiah. Yahweh your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. Somebody's thinking, why is he going to verse 17 and we're about to come back to verse 16. Because this is totally glorious. Let me just read. Isaiah 48 verse 16. Because here we see something about Dabar. The living word of God. Active on this earth. And we also see something glorious about the Trinity. Verse 16 of Isaiah 48. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be. I have been there. Who's speaking? The first and the last. Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity is speaking there. And what does he say next? And now the Lord God has sent me, that is the Father, and his Spirit. Next time a Jehovah's Witness says to you, there's no Trinity in the Bible, just say Isaiah 48, verse 16. Jesus Christ is talking, he's the first and the last, he's just identified himself as God. He's also telling us that he's active on this earth, enabling Cyrus to fulfil his good pleasure and Cyrus' ministry. And then he tells us, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The Hebrew word, Dabar, the active Logos, the active word of God living on this earth. Incidentally, if you go back to Isaiah 44, verse 6, I've lost my page. Isaiah 44, verse 6, which is another, as we noted earlier, of these identification statements of Jesus as the first and the last. Let's read what we read here, because there's another Trinitarian statement here. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. You see that? Two members of the Godhead are saying the same thing. One in essence, three in personality. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. The omniscient God is a God of breathtaking detail. And with that in mind, let's tidy up what we left a little bit unfinished last Sunday when we looked at Cyrus. Before we get into these four Breathtaking details about the return of the Jews to Israel under Ezra. Thanks to Cyrus. Let's just remind ourselves of another piece of breathtaking detail. Judah went into captivity in Babylon in three stages. I put to you the reason they went into captivity in three stages is because God's care for the land was absolute. And he did not and will never empty the land And leave it barren. But guess what? When it comes time to return. They return in three stages too. That which we looked at last week. 538 BC. Cyrus gives his decree. And the Jews start to return. As we'll see in a little while. 42,360 of them. Plus servants. Began their journey back. Under Zerubbabel. Tidy something up. Many people get confused about Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar. Many people get confused just even trying to pronounce those names. But I want you to know that they are the same person. The book of Ezra, which we're going to glimpse at in a little while, was written in two languages. All of the narration, the narrative aspects of the book of Ezra, were written in Hebrew. But Ezra quoted from 12 source documents, many of which were Persian decrees. And the language of the Persian Empire, especially administrative documents, was Aramaic. So the Aramaic or Persian name for Zerubbabel was Sheshbazar. If you're doing a study in Ezra this year, you will find, or any year actually, Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar are the same person. 457 BC, second lot of exiles return under Ezra face to face this time. And then in 444 BC, Nehemiah and his friends go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall in 52 days. So there's a three-stage return, just as there was a three-stage exile out of Judah to Babylon. Our God is a God of breathtaking detail. Now to those four details when I've had a glass of water. In Isaiah 44 verse 13 God speaks through Isaiah 150 years before these events and says, by the way they're going to return without price or reward. It's not going to cost the Jews anything to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. When Britain a few years ago thankfully voted to leave the European Union. 51% voted yes, 49% voted no, so it was a little bit narrow. But the leaves had it, praise the Lord. They still had an awful lot of negotiating to do to get out of the European Union. Because the European Union wanted reparations. You want your own country back? Well, you've got to pay us billions and billions and billions of pounds. Because we've invested in your country. On a human level, it is so, so true that there is no such thing as a free lunch. How many of you know that? Mm -hmm. But how many of you also know that the wisdom of our God is that he turns the earth and the world upside down? He certainly turns the standards of the world upside down. That's why we're called to love one another as Christ first loved us. The only place you'll ever get a true free lunch, and Isaiah tells us this as well in Isaiah 55... Come buy wine and milk without price. is from God. And that's what the Jews found. This prophecy was totally, totally fulfilled. So let's go to Ezra chapter 6. Well, actually, let's start with Ezra chapter 1. And we'll read verses 1 to 4. Notice, as you find Ezra, that in the Christian Bible... It follows straight on from Second Chronicles. There's good reason for that in terms of Christian theology. One of the things that we know is that Ezra is the most likely author of First and Second Chronicles and also the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He wrote them all. In the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. And 1st and 2nd Chronicles are also one book. And the glorious thing about the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, is that the Jewish Bible finishes with the decree of Cyrus. In what we know of as 2nd Chronicles 36, verses 22 to 23. Let me just read that and then we'll repeat it in Ezra 1, verses 1 to 4. Remember, the Jewish Bible clauses with the words we're about to hear. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house, where? At Jerusalem. Which is in Judah, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord be his God be with him, let him go up. In Hebrew, that phrase which closes the Jewish Bible is one word, let him go up. The word is aliyah, which means to go up. The Jewish Bible closes with the people of Israel going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because they're about to welcome the first advent of their king. And then we read almost the same words from the proclamation of Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. You'll see why I'm repeating this in a moment because it's not an exact repeat. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. See the slight difference in the way that proclamation ends. One ends with the word Alia, let him go up. And the other one ends with the word Jerusalem. If any of you are getting into this omniscience of God stuff, then do a study over the next few weeks on the final word of each of the first five books of the Bible. That is the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Come on, help me out. Deuteronomy and Numbers. Numbers and Deuteronomy. Do, don't do it in that order because you'll get it mixed up. But the last five words, especially in the King James Version, this works. Funny that. Look at the last five words and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what the last five words, the last word of each of those five books is actually pointing to. Because it is not dissimilar to what we've just seen about the word "alia" at the end of the Jewish Bible. The Jewish people getting ready to meet and greet the first advent of their king. And this word Jerusalem where we're told in the book of Acts that same king is returning. Anyway, back to Ezra chapter 6 and the point about without money and without price. Ezra chapter 6 Verses 2 to 9. This is several years after the return to Jerusalem. And some of the uh, governors of the land beyond the river, as it was called, have kicked up a fuss about the Jews now wanting to complete the temple. Notice it was not completed when the foundations were first dug. We'll come back to that in a moment. So Darius the Mede, who was then king, Cyrus had died by this time, goes looking in the government records in the empire of persia for the record of cyrus's original proclamation verse three this is what he finds in the first year of cyrus the king cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of god at jerusalem let the house be rebuilt the place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid, notice this, from the royal treasury. 150 years more, 175 years earlier, Isaiah had said, This temple will be rebuilt without money and without cost. And here you have it fulfilled. Because the royal treasury is footing the bill. But it gets even better for the Jews. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God. Which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem. And brought to Babylon. Be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem. Each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Restitution. We're not even going to hold on to the wealth of Babylon. Because it was stolen from you Jews. We're going to give it back. But then look at this, verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. Not only the building costs, but the sacrifices themselves were to be paid by the Gentiles. And if they didn't, by the way, verse 10 that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, this is scary, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. Glory be to God. Total fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 44 verse 13 made 175 years before these events. And then some. Second detail: people often get confused about the seventy years of the Babylonian captivity, and they look at the maths and they try and be diligent and they think to themselves, "It doesn't. It doesn't make sense," yeah. because the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in five eight six BC, and yet Babylon fell in five three nine BC. And any mathematician, even a non-mathematician, can work out that that's not seventy years. But you know the glory of what God says, and God spoke these prophecies through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, if you want to look it up further, I think it's on your notes. And Jeremiah 29, verse 10. He said 70 years, but he said 70 years would be fulfilled for two distinct purposes. Purpose number one, the Babylonians were jolly well going to get punished for overstepping the way that they had treated the Jewish people. God used them to judge the Jewish people. But then they totally, totally overstepped the mark. And they began doing that in 609 BC. When did Babylon get taken again? Under, not under Daniel, under Cyrus the Great. But the words, many, many, tekel you, pass him, were written on the wall. And Belshazzar's loins gave way. What year was that? We learnt it last week. Come on, there isn't anything about which... God doesn't know. And he wants to teach us his truth. It was 539 BC. Now take 539 BC from 609 BC when the Babylonians first started oppressing Israel and what do you get? 70 years. But Jerusalem and Judah didn't go into exile until 586 BC. And God said, I want the land to enjoy its Sabbaths. The Jewish Talmud, the writings of the Jewish sages, tell us that prior to that exile in 586 BC, Jerusalem had not known Sabbaths. The people who were there, including King David, including King Solomon, had not given Sabbaths. The land, it's Sabbath years. If you want to read about the Sabbath years, is uh, Exodus 23 verses 10 and 11 and Leviticus 26, the whole of the chapter. They were told, every seventh year you make the land have a rest. That's good husbandry. That's good stewardship. But they didn't do it for 490 years. So how many Sabbaths were owing? Seventy. 7 times 70 is 490. As far as we know, the one and only time period, and I suggest to you this is one of the reasons why the book of Ruth is in the Bible, wherein the land was allowed to enjoy its Sabbath, was during the period of the judges. And you had figures like Boaz who took proper care of the land. But from 490 years, during the period of the judges, through to the exile, no Sabbaths were allowed. So 70 were owed. The Jews go into exile in 586 BC. What year can they come back? Or rather, what year can the temple be rebuilt? The answer is 516 BC. And that leads us to the third detail that's rather breathtaking today. Ezra 5, verses 15 to 16. Ezra 5, verses 15 to 16. This is written... In 537 BC by Ezra and he's about to tell us something very very important here when we think about the land needing its Sabbaths and therefore the, land, the temple can't be fully rebuilt until 516 BC. Verse 14 of Ezra 5. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar whom he had made governor. Remember that's Zerubbabel. And he said to him take these vessels go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Now here's the verse. Verse 16, then this Sheshbazar, also known as Zerubbabel in Hebrew, came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. He only laid the foundations. And Ezra goes on to tell us that the people got discouraged after that, so they stopped building. Hence the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah later in our Old Testament. But let's just turn back to Isaiah 44 and verse 28. And let's see once again the breathtaking detail of our omniscient God when he issues a prophecy. Isaiah 44 verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, what does it say? Your foundation shall be laid. Only the foundation. And that was exactly fulfilled. And then from 538 through to 516, you had the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah basically stirring the people up to build the rest of it. It was finally unveiled and sacrifices reinstituted. In 516 BC. 70 years exactly. Since the Jews had gone into exile. Does this just excite me. Or does it excite others in this place. Our God is a God. Of breathtaking detail. Last one. It's been a long morning. The King James version. Of Isaiah 48:20 Tells us that they will go forth. Singing. That is, those who are released from Babylon by Cyrus go out from Babylon, free, flee, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a voice of singing, proclaim it or declare it. That's what we're told would happen. And then we read Isaiah, uh, sorry, Ezra 2 verses 64 to 65, which is about the procession of those people who heeded Cyrus's decree in 538 BC and went forth. Look at this. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. Now, before we go any further, I want to put to you, our God is a God of multiplication. You add those two figures together and then divide by 70 and you get 7,100. That is, you're adding 42,360 and 7,337. Add them together, then divide by 70, and you get 7,100. How many people had gone down into Egypt with Joseph at the time of Jacob, when Jacob was an old man? We're told in Genesis 46. There were 70 of them. Our God is a God who multiplies. Because by the time the Jews are returning to Jerusalem, 70 times, 7,100 are returning. What had God said to Abraham? Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. Incidentally, David and Peter and Paul, the word multiply first appears in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6. To be specific, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Up until that point, we're told that the Holy Spirit had been adding people to the church. The number of those who believed was added, was added, was added. Suddenly, the ministry of the deacons comes into being with Stephen and the other six. And we're told in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and this phrase continues throughout the rest of Acts, that the number of believers was multiplied. How many of you know that if you want to get to a large number quickly, you don't keep adding, you keep multiplying. And glory be to God, Acts chapter 6 tells us how glorious your ministry as deacons actually is. Because God used it, God used servers of tables and administrators in his church to no longer just add to the body of Christ, but for the Holy Spirit to multiply the number of believers that's slightly off the point so i'll get back to the point but glory be to god for the ministry of deacons then we told how many horses and mules and things like that they had but notice this they had 200 male and female singers they went forth singing just as isaiah 48 verse 20 had told them you know how long they sang for Modern-day Western governments, as David pointed out earlier, would not let them do this today because they might spread COVID. 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. These 200 singers and the other 42,360 of that host Would have had hoarse voices by the time they reached Jerusalem. But you know what? Glory be to God. They would have reached Haran on the upper reaches of the the Euphrates River. And from Haran onwards to Jerusalem, all the way singing, they would have been following the route of Father Abraham. Abraham walked with Sarah, with his nephew Lot, and with those few people that he picked up along the way, all the way from Haran to modern-day Jerusalem. And 1,400 years later, his descendants had been multiplied in multiples of 70, and they came back into the land singing. Our God is a God of breathtaking detail. Here's how Werner Keller... This German journalist, who nearly didn't live beyond 1945, but thanks to the active providence of our creator God, he did. He lived through till 1980. Here's what he has to say about what we've just read about. Almost 800 miles have to be covered between Babylon and distant Jerusalem, with the clouds of dust churned up by the caravan as a faithful companion throughout the whole journey. One day they would pass the site of old Mari, They would reach the spot where on the opposite side of the river, the Balik, on whose lower reaches Haran was situated, enters the Euphrates. From then on, the returning exiles were following the same track which had been taken by Abraham 1,400 years earlier when he left the land of his fathers to go to Canaan via Damascus and along the foot of Hermon to the Lake of Galilee. Then came the day when from among the brown peaks of the mountains of Judah, the desolate ruins of the city of Zion rose before their eyes. It was Jerusalem. And then he unpacks the significance of that event. Then he starts to point us to why Second Chronicles 36 verses 22 to 23 closes the Jewish Tanakh. The future of the world lay in this procession to Jerusalem says the American scholar and educationist Mary Ellen Chase, who has been lecturing in universities on the Bible as literature since 1926. It rested with it whether we should have a Bible at all as we know it. There's Ezra the scribe, chronicler, the Bible, the Jewish faith, Christianity and many centuries of Western culture. If there had been no return to Jerusalem, Judah would assuredly have shared by and large the fate of Israel become intermingled with the East and eventually soon lost as a united people. Many of the Jews that returned to Israel from the time of the First World War or thereafter through to 1946-1947 prided themselves on being atheists and socialists. They had a daily newspaper called Davar not dissimilar from the Hebrew word "dabar," meaning "living word. But they were so impressed with Werner Keller's book. And remember, he was German, and it was 1956. The memory of the concentration camps was still not really even a memory. They were so impressed with these socialist, atheist Jews in Tel Aviv with this book and with the spirit of man that had written, the man who had written it, that they bought hundreds and hundreds of copies of this book and gave them out free to the Jews of Tel Aviv glory be to God the entrance of his word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple and as we've seen and heard these last three weeks our God is a God of breathtaking detail and I want to close with a few thoughts firstly We've looked at Isaiah 42 to 48 these last three weeks. Isaiah 49, if you look at it carefully, is being fulfilled and has been fulfilled since about 1946, 1947, before our very eyes. Look especially at Isaiah 49, verses 12 to 20, and you'll see exactly what I mean. The Swiss travel agent, Gustav Scheller, who sold his travel agency business to support Jewish people to make aliyah to Jerusalem, is testimony to what I've just said. But Isaiah 65 and 66 are still to come. Just like many of the prophecies in the book of Revelation are still to come. And if we think it's amazing, and so it is, and totally breathtaking, that our omniscient God could speak through the prophet Isaiah with such minute detail A hundred years plus before Cyrus was even born. A hundred and fifty years plus before Babylon fell. A hundred and seventy-five years plus before the temple was fully rebuilt in Jerusalem. Isaiah 65 and 66 and the book of Revelation in its entirety contain even more minute detail that is still to be fulfilled before our very eyes. And we need to internalize this message that the God of Revelation and the God of Isaiah 65 and 66 is still the God of breathtaking, omniscient detail. Friday night of last week, my friend who's a pastor in the northeast of England, he said, have you seen the giant thing? And I said, I don't know what giant thing you're on about, Mark. I'm very, very sorry. Forgive my northeast of England colloquialism here. But he understood it. Have a look at YouTube giant 2021 sometime. You will see that an Irish real estate company is building 21 artificial intelligence based giants that are going to be placed above the 21 cities they hope within the next 12 months to celebrate humanity. And human beings will be able to enter a 360 degree laser scanner as they pay money to visit one of these giants and have their whole body scanned and then guess what will happen? Again for a fee, again for a price, you, your image will be beamed across a vast cityscape. Phoenix, Arizona is signing up for this, though they're trying to pretend that they're not at the moment because they know it's causing controversy amongst the Christians, and rightly so, of Phoenix, Arizona. But the book of Revelation speaks about the image of the beast. for hundreds of years, and until last Friday, in my case, I'd looked at that and I thought, well, I wonder how that image is going to work, what it's going to look like. I've still got the image of these giants from YouTube in my head. And believe me, it's profoundly disturbing because it's the image of a man to celebrate man's achievements and accomplishments on this earth and you can have the biggest selfie that you've ever had of yourself beamed to celebrate you. God of breathtaking detail. His prophecies are being fulfilled before our very eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this day for what in your grace and generosity you've revealed to us in the Bible. We've spent three Sundays, Lord, looking at some of the detail And I pray and I hope, Lord, that none of us are ever the same as a result of looking at this detail. Forgive my faltering lips, Lord, and my tendency to go on a bit. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would burn the truth of what we've looked at and the significance of what we've looked at into each and every heart and each and every mind and each and every spirit in this place. And for those who listen online, Lord, as well. We thank you that great are the works of the Lord, studied by those who delight in them. And as we think on that, Lord, we thank you for the life of William Cooper and of other Aboriginal Christians who studied the creation texts about man being made in the image of God and the table of the nations in Genesis 10 and 11, and then their Lord's words in Matthew 7, verse 12. And they realised what their life's calling was. We pray, Lord, for all Aboriginal Christians that will be sharing the roots, the foundation, the wellspring of Nadoc Week over the next seven days. And we pray that you would bring revelation to their so far non-Christian brothers and sisters that you would continue Lord Jesus this work of Bible translation into the heart languages of Aboriginal people so that like William Cooper and other courageous Christians who left their homelands to go and live in a place like Footscray they might be voices for the living God in these days we pray too Lord Jesus for our brothers and sisters in the United States of America for whom the star spangled banner means something more than just being a flag it means that the God of the Bible gave them a nation on the proviso that they would tend it and care for it and steward it and administer it according to his laws. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in America, Lord, that are seeking to turn that nation back to you. We pray too, Lord, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that whatever their agendas might be as they wake up on this Independence Day today, that they'll have a different agenda by the end of the day because they'll have met with, in a way perhaps they'd never met with before. The God of the Bible, the first and the last and the spirit whom he has sent. Lord, make us people of the book. Not in a staid legalistic way, but in a way that lives whereby the Spirit of God births the love of God and the fruit of the Spirit so much into our lives, Lord, that we don't have to go out and look for people to share the gospel with. That we're willing to do that, Lord. But that people themselves will see how much we love one another. And they'll want to know this God for themselves. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for granting us To live on this earth through such tumultuous, momentous times. Thank you for this great privilege and responsibility, Lord. To bear your image by the grace of God. Into a world that seems to be becoming more and more wicked by the day. And thanks be to God. Who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ. Both to those being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death. The other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Thank you Lord Jesus you fit us for the call you've placed on our lives thank you that by your multiplied grace Lord Jesus you make us fit for this task individually and together (laughs) glory be to God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit